Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon. I'm Tom Leonard, the chair of the Jefferson Lectures Committee, and I can tell you that the pamphlet that we have in the back is filled with reliable information. Uh, however, if you've opened it, we don't want you to think that I'm Professor Harry Scheiber of the law school who was uh, a bit ill today and so was unable to um, introduce Professor Stanley Katz. So I'm stepping in and honored to do this. Stanley Katz is a Chicago native who received all of his higher education at Harvard, earning the PhD in American history in 1961. Perhaps Professor Katz's broadest impact on the world of research universities was during his 11-year period as president of the American Council of Learned Societies. He's also been president of the Organization of American Historians and of the American Society for Legal History. His scholarly field, as all of you uh, are aware, is American legal and constitutional history. But his current interests and past uh, studies go beyond what may first pop into the mind with that title. He has been interested in recent years in the effects of private philanthropy on public policy, and he's currently researching the behavior of non-governmental conflict resolution organizations in Northern Ireland, in Palestine, Israel, and South Africa. I also notice that he's uh, on a committee charged with studying, uh, for the ACLS, studying conditions in Cuba. Um, so indeed, he has a broad uh, agenda to accomplish. This squares, I believe, with Professor Katz's reputation when he was president of the ACLS, a president who people said admiringly uh, seemed to live on airplanes. Uh, and indeed, he broadened the concern and the issues uh, tackled by that organization. It is, I think, in Professor Katz's uh, interest in things global, as well in things distinctively American, and his um, frequent expression of the vitality of scholarship on early America, the age of Jefferson, that most commended him to my colleagues on the Jefferson Lectures Committee. We're pleased uh, to have this distinguished American historian with us today to speak about constitutionalism and civil society. Thank you, Professor Kennedy. He thought he could get away with my text, that he's wrong. Thank you very much, Tom. It's an honor to be here. Speaking of constitutions, in 1824, two years before his death, Thomas Jefferson said that we consider them not otherwise changeable uh, than by the authority of the people on a special election of representatives for that purpose expressly. They are until then lex legum. But can they be made unchangeable, that is, constitutions? Can one generation bind another and all others in succession forever? I think not. The Creator has made the earth for the living, not the dead. Rights and powers can only belong to persons, not to things, not to mere matter unendowed with will. A generation may bind itself as long as its majority continues in life. When that has disappeared, another majority is in place, holds all the rights and powers their predecessors once held, and may change their laws and institutions to suit themselves. Nothing then is unchangeable but the inherent and unalienable rights of man. In this characteristic statement of the constitutional views of the American Enlightenment, Jefferson evoked both political realism and rights-based legal idealism. The tension between those two concepts forms my theme today. History and law have always been at the core of my concerns, but about 25 years ago, I turned my attention to the history of philanthropy and especially to the field of philanthropic foundations 
and I've been working in the general field of philanthropy since that time. However, from time to time, I've returned to my much older love of constitutional history and law, a field to which I was introduced by Mark DeWolf Howe at the Harvard Law School. My scholarly interests in both philanthropy and law expanded in an international direction during my 11 years at ACLS, as Tom has said, a period spent mostly on airplanes to places whose languages I could not speak. As a result, in the field of philanthropy, my attention has turned from American nonprofit organizations to their foreign cousins, non-governmental organizations, or NGOs. In constitutional law, my focus has shifted to comparative constitutionalism and to constitutionalism outside the United States. This lecture represents an initial attempt to work out a late dawning realization that my two preoccupations, philanthropy, that is the institutions of civil society, and constitutional law, are in fact two different aspects of a single problem. I suspect that I can understand them both better if I think of them as related, and that is what I want to attempt to do this afternoon. I'm deeply grateful for this invitation and honored that the university should have asked me to deliver the Jefferson uh, lecture. Let me start with constitutional law. Like many historians and political scientists, I was drawn to the excitement of the bicentennial of the United States Constitution in the mid-80s. My principal concern at the time of the bicentennial was that we Americans should not devote ourselves to an orgy of self-congratulation, but rather that we should take the opportunity to reflect on the contemporary significance of our 200 years of constitutional experience. Thanks to the Ford Foundation, which asked me what it might do to commemorate the bicentennial, I was able to organize a project on the idea of constitutionalism, which has long seemed to me the most important US contribution to modern thought. The Ford staff also agreed that we ought to study the progress of this idea outside the United States, both in order to understand its range and growth, and better to understand our own constitutionalism. The result was a large grant for a substantial ACLS project on comparative constitutionalism beginning in 1987, lasting nearly five years and extending to Latin America, Africa, South and Southeast Asia, and Europe, East and West, as it then was. What did I learn during the course of the project about constitutionalism? Uh, I cannot pretend that my mind was a tabula rasa at the outset. My notion of the origins of American constitutionalism, drawn from my mentor Bernard Balin, was that 18th century Americans had conceived of constitutionalism in instrumental terms, uh, as a consciously contrived mechanism for yoking limitations on government to the will of the people in a dynamic, geographically distributed manner. American constitutionalism was thus uh, distinguishable at the time of the revolution from the organic and taxonomic British notion that viewed the Constitution as little more than an historical description of the proper functions of government. Ours was the constitutionalism of new nations, self-consciously rooting itself simultaneously in popular consent and self-restraint and based upon communally prescribed and yet mutable institutions. But of course, my notion was and is at odds with those Americans and Europeans who think of constitutions and constitutionalism in a more absolutist, rationalist, enlightenment manner. Indeed, the tension between these two conceptions proved to be very much at the core of contention in the Comparative Constitutionalism Project. It would be easy to summon up a straw man to caricature the idealist position, and I don't want to be accused of taking a cheap shot. So I will offer up my friend and colleague, Walter Murphy, as a very positive example of the universalist position. Walter was a crucial participant in the ACLS project. Uh, he wrote one of the two keystone essays that were circulated to all of the conferences. It was called Constitutions, Constitutionalism, and Democracy, and he's currently finishing a book on that subject. His essay is a brilliant account of the role of constitutionalism in liberal democracies, and we used it to contrast with an opposing functionalist, some would say relativist, approach represented by H.W.O. Okathagendo's essay, Constitutions Without Constitutionalism, 
reflections on an African political paradox, of which more in a few minutes. Murphy begins his essay by contrasting constitutionalism with democratic theory. He says, whereas democratic theory turns to moral relativism, constitutionalism turns to moral realism. It presumes that out there lurk discoverable standards to judge whether public policies infringe on human dignity. The legitimacy of a policy depends not simply on the authenticity of decision, maker, decision makers' credentials, but also on substantive criteria. If there are discoverable standards out there, there are rationally specifiable parameters to constitutionalism. And this is what I would describe as a truly enlightenment account, strongly based in Lockean individualism. Murphy also says, constitutionalists tend to be more pessimistic about human nature, fearing that people are sufficiently clever to oppress without hurting themselves. Constitutional theorists do not deny the importance of institutional and cultural checks, but see those as insufficient. They are constantly concerned with the human penchant to act selfishly and abuse power. They want institutional restraints on substantive matters to prevent lapses into an authoritarian or even totalitarian system cloaked with populist trappings. But for Murphy, constitutionalism always refers back to liberal individualism. Constitutionalism enshrines respect for human worth and dignity as its central principle. To protect that value, citizens must have a right to political participation, and their government must be hedged in by substantive limits on what it can do, even when perfectly mirroring the, public, the popular will. This, I would argue, is the basic Western notion of liberal democratic constitutionalism. It is what most of our compatriots conceive of when they refer to constitutionalism, and it is the account normally taught to students of American constitutional law. But Walter Murphy's analysis is not so typical of a variety of forms of constitutionalism conceptualized and practiced outside Western democracies. In 1987, after all, socialism was the dominant form of socio-political organization in much of the world, and the socialists contended self-assuredly that they were constitutionalists. Today, apart from China, Vietnam, and Cuba, socialist constitutionalism, something, by the way, that the Ford Foundation program officers assured me didn't exist in 1987, is not much of a factor. But the countries of the third world still contend for starkly, starkly alternative uh, varieties of constitutionalism. The second contrasting essay circulated to all the conferences was by the Kenyan lawyer, Okoth Agendo. Koth's essay could not have been further from Murphy's, since, although he was trained in the UK and in this country, he was working from an African perspective. He began his essay by observing that the dilemma of African constitutionalism is that no body of constitutional law or principles of constitutionalism appears to be developing in Africa and might well fail to do so. The paradox lies in the simultaneous existence of what appears as a clear commitment by African political elites to the idea of the Constitution and an equally clear rejection of the classical or at any rate liberal democratic notion of constitutionalism. From an African point of view, Okoth contended, all law, and constitutional law in particular, is concerned not with abstract norms, but with the creation, distribution, exercise, legitimation, effects, and reproduction of power. It matters not whether that power lies with the state or in some other organized entity. From this perspective, therefore, the very idea of law, hence of a constitution as a special body of law, entails commitment or adherence to a theory of organized power. In Africa, he thought, the focus had to be on constitutions rather than on constitutionalism, on what he called the process of constitution making which involves inter alia making choices as to which should appear on that map, which cannot be regarded as a simple reproduction of some basic principles that particular societies may have found operational. Like many constitutionalists in emerging democracies, he views constitutionalism as a struggle. 
acknowledging that there is what he calls broad agreement on the essence of constitutionalism, fidelity to the principle that the exercise of state power must seek to advance the ends of society, that attainment has not been an easy matter. The political history of many societies is replete with struggles for an optimum balance between the few on whom constitutions confer power and the vast majority for whose benefit it is supposed to be exercised. What is clear is that in no society has that balance been achieved through the promulgation of a constitution. So much for what Walter Murphy would call constitutionism or constitutionalism as simple adherence to textualism. But there was no clear agreement uh, as to the meaning of constitutionalism at the conclusion of the comparative uh, constitutionalism project. I came away convinced that the Enlightenment interpretation did not provide a sufficiently common ground for understanding principles and behaviors thought constitutional by indigenes around the world. Uh, over the course of the project, it said, it became clear that there were two dramatically differing thrusts in defining constitutionalism. The first led toward a highly formalistic view that relied principally on the structural features of constitutional documents. The second tended to regard the constitutionalism of a particular society as a dynamic process rooted in underlying local social realities. Despite the fundamental incomp incompatibility of these two approaches, they repeatedly intersected analytically. And I've already characterized these two polar views by contrasting Murphy and Kofagendo. In the introduction to the book summarizing all of this, my colleagues and I concluded that constitutionalism is a dynamic political process rather than a fixed mode of distributing power, rights, and duties, and that constitutional legitimacy is thus more often validated by political and social realities than by formal legal criteria. We came down strongly in the realist, functionalist camp, and this informed our attempt to articulate what we called an approximate definition of constitutionalism. A commitment to limitations on ordinary political power, it revolves about a political process, one that overlaps with democracy in seeking to balance state power and individual and collective rights, it draws on particular cultural and historical contexts from which it emanates, and it resides in public consciousness. And that is to say that constitutionalism, if it is to emerge, emerge must arise out of such indigenous political controversies and that its final form is not necessarily predictable. Constitutionalism is thus a continuing political and social process issuing out of contestation and admitting few absolutes. Work this definition over a little bit uh, more uh, in a series of conferences that we held in uh, East Central Europe. And there I said, uh, shorn of universals, what is constitutionalism? To my mind, if there is an essence of constitutionalism, and I think that there is, it is not to be found in the structure of the constitutional arrangements and institutions that are established in a particular country, Rather, it is to be found in the practice of constitutionalism, in a form of politics that is based on the notion of respect for the rule of law, in which government, however it is configured, reflects the basic values and aspirations of the community. This definition certainly will never convince anyone who conceives of constitutionalism in idealist terms, but it is as close as I can come to defining the core issues. And I think it's quite close to the thinking of many other people, including one of your own colleagues, Hannah Pitkin, uh, whose wonderful talk uh, at the time of the bicentennial on the idea of a constitution expresses many of these same notions. There she argued that constitutions are made, not found. They are human creations, products of convention, choice, the specific history of a particular people, and almost always, a political struggle in which some win and others lose. One might even want to argue that our Constitution is more something we do than something we make. We reshape it all the time through our collective activity. Our Constitution is uh, what is relatively stable in our activity. A stranger learns its principles by watching our conduct. This is a highly realistic account 
that posits a tight fit between constitutional behavior and constitutionalism. And it seems compelling to me as an account of the American constitutional experience, as well as a basis for thinking about comparative constitutionalism. Each society must, I think, develop its own culture of constitutionalism. Such national cultures will indeed bear certain generic similarities to one another, but they will be living cultures, constant, constantly evolving in dialectical tension with the larger cultures of which they are a part. The larger inquiry must be what constitutes constitutional culture. Well, what about civil society? It has only been recently that the term civil society has come back into fashion and political theory and history. And Ernest Gellner has suggested why. He says, a new ideal was born or reborn in recent decades, civil society. Previously, a person interested in the notion of civil society could be assumed to be an historian of ideas concerned perhaps with Locke or Hegel. But the phrase itself had no living resonance or evocativeness. Rather, it seemed distinctly covered with dust. And now, all of a sudden, it has been taken out and thoroughly dusted and has become a shining emblem. As Gellner implies, it has been the struggle of formerly communist nations to build democratic societies since 1989 that has brought the notion of civil society into currency. But now it seems essential to bring the concept into broader play in order to revisit our general assumptions about what it is that makes constitutional democracy work. Over the past few years, scholars have produced a series of important new works analyzing the intellectual history uh, of the idea of civil society. Books and essays, uh, such as those by Adam Seligman, John Keane, Charles Taylor, and most recently John Ehrenberg, a political scientist, uh, upon whose book, Civil Society, The Critical History of an Idea, my argument is based. What emerges most interestingly from this new scholarship is the perception that the classical notion of civil society is nearly synonymous with the whole of organized political community persisted until the end of the Middle Ages. The story begins, as one would expect, with the Greeks, who believed that the defining element of civilization was the capacity to live in civil society. This, after all, was what distinguished Greeks from barbarians. Through politics, citizens could surmount their personal circumstances and develop the ability to exercise virtue, the capacity to subordinate one's individual interests to those of the community and of the common good. The mechanism for identifying the common or public good was through public debate. And once identified, the mutual pursuit of the public good transformed public life into a common moral project. As Aristotle put it, those constitutions which consider the common interest are the right constitutions, judged by the standards of absolute justice. Those constitutions which consider only the personal interest of the rulers are all wrong constitutions or perversions of the right forms. State and civil society were also coterminous as Christianity became the overarching intellectual framework of the Middle Ages. Thinkers such as St. Augustine suffused their understanding of the state and politics with their theology denying that human reason alone could discover truth or that human institutions alone could perfect social and political life. Thus, it would not be until the Christian world began to fracture in the 16th century that human agency and modern notions of social engineering would once again conceptualize civil society as subject to human intervention and as something separate from the state. At that point, a variety of thinkers from Machiavelli and Luther to Hobbes developed new theories for understanding civil society, ranging from concepts of princely power and civic republicanism to the liberating conscience as the self-sufficient organizing principles of civil society. But they did not have to come to terms with the dominating force and sociological idea of the modern world that is the market. By the 18th century, however, the market could no longer be ignored and the historical idea of civil society split into two strands. The first of these was developed by John Locke, 
who thought of civil society as the representation of private interests regulated by law in the new nation state, and who equated property with citizenship. Civil society denoted people living in economic activity and in political freedom to closely interrelated conditions. Correspondingly, however, uh, the Lockean tradition emptied civil society of any notion of the public good, since its sole purpose was to protect private interests. Yet Locke never abandoned the notion of the political importance of civil society. And this line of thinking was carried much further by the Scots of the Enlightenment, especially Adam Smith and Adam Ferguson, both of whom conceived of civil society as the realm of individual self-interest, but as tempered by moral society regarding arguments, sentiments, excuse me. They tried to reconcile the, the autonomy of the rational person with the solidarity of the community and to make private desire compatible with public virtue. Thus, the private character of the interests being protected did not preclude civil society from achieving moral good. It has not been so widely recognized, however, that Smith's economics need to be understood in terms of his psychology, for the Scots Enlightenment thinkers insisted upon the need of every individual for self-recognition and thereby uh, infused a strongly moral element into their account of civil society. Kant, Hegel, Marx, later developed this market-oriented notion of civil society in complex ways, but I'm not going to pursue that here, for it is the other strand in the history of the idea of civil society, one that Ehrenberg calls an intermediate sphere of voluntary association and activity standing between the individual and the state. That is the idea most commonly used in the contemporary world, and it's the one that I need to pursue today. This was the tradition of Montesquieu, Rousseau, and Tocqueville. Montesquieu was the first to identify intermediate organizations as crucial components of civil society. He believed that together with a balanced constitution, associations could make the difference between a despot and a monarch. The difference mainly resided in the lack of arbitrary laws and in the stability and predictability of the rules and regulations that governed life so that monarchy was rendered dependent on fundamental law. The intermediate organizations of a monarchy acted as a deflection of central power. They protected both against the threat of the despot as well as against those of the mob, since liberty was conceived of as property and the privileges of the aristocracy. But the most important exponent of this second associational strand of civil society was de Tocqueville. Now, Ehrenberg observes that Tocqueville's culturally driven notion of American civil society attached a profoundly individualistic people to the general welfare in conditions of widespread social equality. The American disposition to form voluntary organizations distinguished her from Europe and allowed her to avoid both state leveling and aristocratic privilege. Here, play back in your head all of the familiar phrases from democracy in America that one hears incessantly these days in discussions of the remarkable history of our voluntary associations. Uh, Tocqueville believed that voluntary associations fused personal interest in the common good, and he hoped that civil society would serve liberty by diluting the influence of any single interest, weakening the majority, and guarding against the excesses of the very democracy that stimulated their appearance. It was thus the associationalism of civil society that counteracted the tendency of egalitarianism to produce a society of strangers. This made it all the more important for civil society to provide the principles of association that are not spontaneously generated by politics or commerce. Uh, Tocqueville hoped uh, that the Americans could show Europe how to limit the egalitarian and universal democratic state by reserving considerable power to a civil society that could mediate between the isolated individuals of a commercial society and an increasingly centralized and intrusive governmental apparatus. The implications of this second strand of Enlightenment thinking about civil society have been worked out in many different ways. But in one form or another, they underlie the logic of most recent attempts to appeal to civil society 
as the backbone of participatory democracy. There is now a virtual industry of conflicting interpretations of the relationship of civil society to democracy, almost all deriving from this uh, Tocqueville, uh, Montesquieu uh, strand of the idea and emphasizing the importance of the intermediary associations of associational life to democratic behavior. There is, as Gellner has reminded us, relatively little mystery why this should have happened. In his words, the condition defined by civil society had become highly valued and loaded with political appeal. In extensive parts of the world, what it denoted was absent. This lack came in due course to be strongly felt and bitterly resented. Eventually, it turned into an aching void. The absence was felt acutely in societies which had strongly centralized all aspects of life and where a single political, economic, ideological hierarchy tolerated no rivals and one single vision defined not only truth but personal rectitude. This caused the rest of society to approximate an atomized condition Dissent then became a mark of heresy, or in the terminology of modern ideology, it defined an enemy of the people. Societies of this kind had emerged through the influence and the implementation of Marxism, and one way of summarizing the central intuition of Marxism is to say, civil society is a fraud. Therefore, as we have asked ourselves how to assist countries in their transition to democracy, we have frequently identified civil society as a concept helpful in developing strategies of assistance. And it has been useful in two ways. On the one hand, it identifies the problem to be solved, since civil society is usually defined as the space between the state and the free market, a space that was obviously lacking in communist regimes in which, at least in theory, the state occupied the entire sphere of social endeavor and there was no market sphere. But with the failure of state socialism, the question was whether there needed to be something other than the two domains of social activity, the state and the market. The answer seemed to be that a buffer zone called civil society was indeed necessary, both for the emergence of democracy and for, and for the successful operation of the market. Associational, voluntary, and non-market individual activity churches, fraternal organizations, and the like occupy the civil society space thus considered. In the context of transitional regimes, the most important function of the organizations of civil society is to enable society at large to determine its own interests and to open the possibility for the expression of opposition to the state. This is why there has been such tremendous focus on civil society in the newly emerging European democracies in the years since 1989. But the second way in which civil society was useful to the post-communist reformers was in defining the process by which democratization could take place. For the very nature of associational and voluntary life, especially its facilitation of voluntary activity of all kinds, is thought to create or reinforce the social values that are productive of democratic behaviors. Civil society organizations are believed to facilitate socially productive activities through voluntary efforts and to bring individuals together in collective pursuit of common goals. We are told that they engender mutual trust amongst their participants and that these micro-communities of trust accumulate in generalized social trust. Such behaviors, on the contrary, uh, are not normally produced by the self-interest maximizing pressures of the market, nor are they facilitated by interactions with the state. So civil society, it is argued, provides a paradigm for conceptualizing strategies to create the preconditions for democracy in transitional nations. But of course, the concept of civil society is not employed exclusively in thinking about trans transitional regimes. It is also, following the lead of Robert Putnam of Harvard, become most attractive in evaluating the effectiveness of democracy in the post-industrial world. Ironically, Putnam, now the most vigorous analyst of civil society in the United States, came to his insights in the course of a two decades long study of governmental performance in Italy. 
There he was trying to determine why the new regional governments of Italy in the 1970s were more successful in some parts of the country than in others. And through a brilliant uh, empirical historical analysis of Italian social and political behavior, he came to the conclusion that high levels of capacity for self-government were directly correlated with long historical traditions of associational activity. It was because of the habit of joining organizations maintained for common purposes that individuals developed the civic consciousness and trust in one another that facilitated the establishment of democratic forms of governance. In other words, the existence of a vigorous and viable civil society was a prerequisite for democracy. Putnam explained this process by positing the creation of social capital, features of social organizations such as trust, norms, and networks that can improve the efficiency of society by facilitating coordinated actions. He posited social capital as the mechanism through which effective civil society was created and maintained. Social capital thus created can be expended in the production of positive democratic values and behaviors. And more recently, Putnam has turned his attention to the study of social capital and civil society in this country and to the elaboration of the thesis that social capital can be depleted as well as accumulated. His best known attempt has been the article called Bowling Alone, America's Declining Social Capital, which he published five years ago, in which he observed that levels of associational activity in the United States have been declining over the course of the 20th century, using the example of the decline of bowling leagues, in which substantial numbers of people organize their sporting, sporting lives communally, rather than exercising on a machine in front of a television set. Putnam is now systematically assessing the mechanisms through which communal activity creates social capital and the reasons why levels of social capital rise and fall. And his book, Bowling Alone, will be published uh, in a month. He argues that social capital is a concept that enables us to understand the importance of civil society for American democracy, and that, hence, can help us to develop strategies to strengthen democracy. There is an emerging scholarly school of opinion that agrees with Putnam that the associational activities of civil society engender the sort of societal trust that enables nation with vibrant civil societies to improve the quality of their democratic cultures. Nevertheless, Putnam's positive reading of civil society is evoking scholarly dissent whose most characteristic form has been the recognition that one man's social capital is another man's treason. The militias and the Ku Klux Klan, after all, are civil society organizations. Or, to use a more telling example, Princeton political scientist Sherry Berman has noted that associational life flourished in Germany well into the 20th century. And she says, in contrast to what neo-Tocquevillian theories would predict, high levels of associationalism, absent strong and responsive national government and political parties served to fragment rather than to unite German society. It was weak political institutionalization rather than a weak civil society that was Germany's main problem during the Willemite and Weimar eras. And this analysis is what um, Sherry's graduate students call bowling with Hitler. It's a required article. <laughs> Or, as another Princeton colleague, Keith Whittington, has asked, is it necessarily true that expanded civil engagement will support democracy? He says, civil society may be as much of a threat to democratic institutions as a support. A well-functioning democracy depends not only on social relations, but also on the political institutions and on a constitutional order that structures the relationship between them. Princeton scholars contend that it is not civil society alone that makes democracy work, but rather uh, that appropriate legal and political institutions of constitutionalism and politics are pre prerequisites for a democratically positive civil society. And this, of course, brings me to the puzzle that forms the subject of the lecture, and that is, what is the relationship uh, of civil society and constitutionalism? 
Unfortunately, despite all of the recent scholarly attention to civil society, there have been surprisingly few attempts to relate the concepts of civil society and constitutionalism rather than democracy. The question for me is whether a civil society uh, and constitutionalism are somehow integrally connected to one another, and if so, how. One way to begin the inquiry is to ask, what is the purpose of each process? For, as you have seen, I consider both constitutionalism and civil society best understood as processes rather than as abstractions. Unless we think, as only an extreme formalist would, that constitutionalism is good in itself, we must value it as helping society to reach some higher goal. The common sense response would be that it is valuable insofar as it tends to produce and or sustain a valuable end such as democracy. Walter Murphy would say that the goal is securing human dignity, and he would argue that human dignity is best served in a liberal constitutional democracy. Uh, John Rawls would argue that the goals is, goal is a well-ordered constitutional democratic society. Can the same be said for civil society? For we might also argue that the end of civil society is simply to produce democracy. Gellner denies that. Uh, he finds, in fact, that the concept of civil society is more helpful, more meaningful than that of democracy. He argues that civil society does help us clarify our social norms and make plain what, what it is we endorse and why it appeals to us. In this respect, civil society is markedly superior to a notion such as democracy, which, though it may highlight the fact that we prefer consent over coercion, tells us freshest little concerning the social preconditions of the effectiveness of general consent and participation. The concept of civil society highlights not only the mechanics, but also the charms of the kind of society to which we aspire. And there's a sense for Gellner in which civil society is not simply analytically, but substantively more meaningful than democracy. Again, he argues, democracy is indeed involved although it is indeed involved, it is the institutions and social context which alone make it possible and preferable that really matter. Without these institutional preconditions, democracy has little clear meaning or feasibility. Civil society is probably a better and more illuminating slogan than democracy. And I think that Gellner's onto something here, that we ought to value civil society as much for what it is and does of itself as for what it contributes to democracy or to constitutionalism. Democracy, after all, is a flawed political mechanism for perfecting society, and to some extent a successfully functioning civil society ought to be an end in itself. But I've already acknowledged that we cannot assume that civil society will function effectively, just as we cannot assume that democracy, without more, will serve the interests of all citizens. The cure for malfunctioning civil society would seem to be democratic political institutionalization, while the cure for democratic excess is constitutional limitations. Although we have a classic chicken-egg problem, the reality seems to be that fully fashioned democracy requires both civil society and constitutionalism. Civil society and constitutionalism are both necessary but not sufficient conditions for democracy. Mark Tushnet has suggested to me that we should think of them as having an elective affinity for one another. And something like this was urged at a uh, 1992 ACLS Warsaw conference by Poland's foreign minister, the distinguished medieval historian Bronislaw Geremek, who said that constitutionalism is primarily a point of reference for the socio-political system, indeed the highest point of reference, overriding parochial concerns. Constitutionalism reflects the recognition by all political actors that a particular political process established democratically must be respected for valid political activity to take place. The crucial element is that whatever the constitutional structure, it must reflect the will of the people and it must command sufficient respect from all political actors to serve as an effective limitation on the unprincipled exercise of public power. Goremic is arguing that constitutionism is insufficient, 
and that constitutionalism is a cultural process, and that it is not too much of a stretch to say that certain preconditions, perhaps those of effective civil society, are necessary for effective constitutionalism to take root. What is it, after all, that enables citizens to develop the necessary respect for the constitutional structure, unless we believe that democratic politics is an entirely self-contained system? In a recent discussion of Rawlsian contractarianism, contractarian constitutionalism, Frank Michaelman has observed that it absolutely depends on the idea that your acceptance as right, as fair, as worthy of your respect of a lawmaking system or constitution commits you to acceptance of the daily run of lawmaking events that issue from the system. That, after all, is the point of Rawls's claim that exercises of political coercion are justifiable insofar as they accord with, quote, a constitution, the essentials of which all citizens may be expected to endorse. If so, to what extent do forms of civil society contribute to what might be called constitutional respect? James Buchanan has written about the ethics of constitutional order, and one might imagine such a concept to mean that good citizenship requires the development of a citizen's moral capacities to meet not only uh, rule-abiding, but other-regarding. And these are surely traits uh, which a strong civil society should engender. It seems clear that neither constitutional respect nor constitutional ethics, however, will be easily attained. Uh, I earlier quoted Hannah Pitkin as saying that constitutions are human creations, products of convention, choice, the specific history of a particular people, and almost always a political struggle. And Okothagendo, you may remember, made the same point. For someone who believes that constitutionalism and civil society are both highly contested processes, it seems likely that constitutional democracy uh, must be the result of long, conflicted cultural process. I doubt that such vibrant constitutionalism can come into existence prior to the creation of a positive civil society, but I'm also sure that civil society alone cannot produce such a result. This, I fear, is as far as I can get on the basis of my previous scholarship, my personal experience working with aspiring constitutionalists in newly emerging democracies. For me, the problem is not fundamentally theoretical, but practical, since a bright future for the world depends upon its solution. I hope to pursue the question comparatively uh, from both the historical and contemporary constitutional perspectives, but an answer will require the international efforts of many humanists and social scientists. We need to do some very sophisticated history to examine different sorts of democratic societies at different periods of time and in diverse parts of the world to determine the ways in which constitutionalism and civil society have coexisted and interacted. And of course, we much, must bring social science to bear on the problem since the contemporary world provides such intriguing context for exploring constitutionalism, civil society links. And think of the examples. The ongoing democratization of formerly communist countries in Europe, and quite differently in Asia. Uh, the development and democratization in Africa and elsewhere in the third world. And the health of constitutional democracy in the post-industrial first world. The challenge is to avoid an emphasis on political institutions that ignores the cultural context within which they are embedded, or a focus on societal and cultural dynamics that ignores political context, but rather to undertake sophisticated analyses of how institutional, societal, and cultural factors interact, and what kinds of outcomes different combinations are likely to produce. If Professor Pitkin is correct, that constitutionalism is something we do and we shape through our collective activity, those who care about the quality of democracy around the world need to consider whether their activities have to reach beyond the legal and political to the social sphere, beyond constitutionalism to civil society, or the other way around. If democratic institutions, including law, are not enough to create and maintain democracy, we have some hard work to do if we are to, to sustain our constitutional and social infrastructure of democracy into another century, 
and to encourage the emerging constitutional democracies around the world in their current and future struggles. Thank you very much. Professor Katz will take a few questions. I wanted to ask you uh, what do you include in uh, there is a, a lot of literature on the role of political parties as necessary to provide meaningful democracy. Would you include political parties as part of civil society or something else? Well, there's a difficult question. I don't know if everyone could hear it. The question is simply whether one should think of political parties as part of civil society. And you probably know there's a big debate among the theorists, um, most of whom at this point do not include political parties, nor do they include um, laboring, labor organizations and other large uh, quasi-political organizations of that kind. I think it's probably a mistake. And I'm inclined to think that we have to consider them part of civil society because, for instance, if you take the Eastern European context, um, the point, at least at this stage of development or in the earlier stages of development, was that they replaced political parties. And before it was possible to develop political parties, civil society could serve as an oppositional force. Well, that is clearly a political function of it. So, I'm, you know, I'm not enough committed to the theory of political society. I have a deep feeling about that. But I, I would say yes, that I think it's very useful to think of political parties. They are associations, after all. And I don't see why we shouldn't consider them. standing on one foot. Um, I, I now would use a, a warning that I always use, which is to say, and um, when I talk thing, about things like this, I should know better. Um, historians do not predict the future. They predict the past. <laughs> and I have to say, I guess, that I'm very skeptical of anything like a global constitutional order, just as I'm very skeptical of a global government. Indeed, I'm not sure I would favor such a thing if it could happen for a lot of reasons. But I think the most important one, I think, is what I laid out here. I think, without being too Jeffersonian about this, there's something to be said for an identity between culture and government. Uh, and that uh, government, it seems to me, effective government, a particularly effective democratic government, really does depend on mirroring in some substantial way uh, the cultures of the peoples it represents. That gets to be more and more difficult to do, it would seem to me, at higher and higher levels of abstraction. But um, it's a glorious vision, and I'm sure there are people a lot smarter than I am who could work it out. I must say I don't know of people who are particularly working on the problem. It seems to be difficult enough simply to make the United Nations work rather than to aspire to that. It's the best I can do. I am an historian, um, and I tend to look at things um, in a narrative descriptive uh, way. I was trying to do a little bit more here. But I mean, the argument I was trying to make here is that, that we need to do that, in fact, that one gets into trouble, I think, um, by a, uh, an approach which, which starts from principles and, and proceeds to concrete uh, institutional outcomes. And, I think one does politically, and uh, <laughs> and I mean I think that's true of our own constitutional history. I mean I, we didn't start 
with the principles of uh, constitutionalism or of a constitution. And indeed, I think there are precious few governmental principles in the Constitution of the United States because effective government in the 1787 Constitution is in effect delegated to the states. Um, the federal government was intended to, to do only certain very minimal kinds of things. And I think part of the success of the constitutional system has been precisely that we uh, relegated in effect to history and to political and social process the uh, responsibility for working out political and legal institutions. And, and it's why also I think if you look at the history of the Constitution itself, we have the longest lived Constitution in the world and the shortest. It's, you know, it has survived because it says so little. And that I think is its great virtue. But it has worked because the, the process has worked. But not everybody would agree with that view. Ralph? I've always been a little puzzled by the enthusiasm for the concept of civil society. Uh, you, in, in discussing it, uh, set it aside apart from the state and the market. Right. So that everything in between is somehow going to ideally want to function in a democratic way, balancing the interests mm -hmm. of the state and the market and the citizens. Uh, I have trouble with such a global notion That's the, that's the big question. I think I don't know if everyone could hear. Professor Kramer's asking whether um, it's useful to think of civil society as a space uh, between the state on the one hand and the market on the other. And since it comprehends everything in between, the family, um, political parties, uh, almost everything you can think of. Um, I agree with you um, in a couple of ways. One is, I mean, I don't find the the uh, geographical notion to be a very helpful one. State's over here, the market's over here, and civil society is what is in between. That's hopelessly mechanical, and I don't think any of us believes it works in anything like that way. I think of it as a process, and there I think it is helpful, um, although I think the labeling is quite quite arbitrary. Some people think the market is part of civil society. I mean, you could say the civil society is everything that is not the state. And so what has appealed to me about it is the way in which it's used politically by thinkers like Montesquieu, let's say, which is to think of organizations that do mediate in various ways between the state and other uh, institutional manifestations of, of society. And there, I wouldn't, as many people do now, and I think Bob Putnam does, um, um, ascribe a normative value to civil society. And I think, in fact, in the rhetoric over the last, what, five, six years, you know better than I do, um, there's a lot of poppycock about civil society and about volunteerism and so forth. And uh, General Powell is one of the kinds of people who is institutionalizing that. But both parties buy into it. Um, it's a convenient concept because you don't have to analyze what's actually going on. So I, I would agree with you that it can be um, it can be very misleading. I don't agree at all with Putnam's analysis of it. But I do think the basic concept as a process can be extremely useful in thinking through the dynamics of how a democratic society works. And that's why people like you and I study the kinds of institutions, non-political institutions that we do. But I can't say more than that. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, well, I was, as you can see, I was quite carefully trying to have it both ways here, and somebody always asked that question. Uh, and I'll have to say that it's what I've said about constitutionalism generally, I would say about human rights. That is, say, I, I certainly think there is a core there, but I think it's very hard to define. And I think when you get beyond the sort of basic issues of the core, 
there is, I think, um, justifiable disagreement about the nature of human rights. And I have a lot of trouble with highly normative universalistic accounts of human rights. But that's partly a process point rather than a categorical point. Because while I would aspire, I think, to the kind of definition I think is implied by what you said, um, I do think there are situations in which I am prepared to make do on the theory that there are larger social questions that simply have to be attended to. And uh, so I don't think, on the whole, that I would always put those values first. I think that's a prescription for political problems, which may not be in the social interest at a given period of time. But that's having it both ways, and I'm not enough of a philosopher to put that in elegant terms. I got into trouble, by the way, I have many times. But when I was, I'll give you an example of that. Um, I was in, in China in uh, late May and early June of 1989. And I spent four days sleeping on the floor of the airport in Shanghai. And while I was there, I had a little shortwave radio. Um, I, I was representing ACLS and the National Academy of Sciences in something called the um, Committee on Scholarly uh, Communication with the PRC. And I heard that the National Academy had uh, broken off relations with China. It made me feel a little uncomfortable. On the whole, I wanted to go home at that, at that point. When I did, I went to Washington to speak to Frank Press, who was then the president of the National Academy. And I asked him why he had done that. And he said, well, he, they had a human rights committee. And the human rights scientists thought this was an outrage. And it clearly, the National Academy of Sciences of the United States could not have relations with such people. And I said, well, you know, in principle, I think that's a nice idea. But what you're doing is abandoning the people we spent the last 20 years um, supporting and, in fact, protecting. And I said, if we're not there, the chances of their suffering for this, and indeed the very people who are proclaiming uh, for human rights in China, is simply much greater. And I said, I'm not comfortable with this position, but I know exactly where I stand, which is I think that we need to stay in a place like that. And he told me I didn't know anything about human rights. And, um, but to be fair, he allowed ACLS to carry on science exchanges after that time with them. And that's, that was one on which I felt completely unconflicted, in the same way that we kept exchanges going with the Soviet Union during Afghanistan. And, and we were very widely criticized for doing that. So that's the kind of gray area that I feel strongly about, and that sort of illustrates the point. Perhaps you'll allow me as a chair to ask the next to the last question. We'll go back for one more. Um, and this will take us perhaps to the question we found in the bottom. The sociologist Michael Schutzen has recently argued there's a sort of deep irony in this enthusiasm for civil society, because as he reads the Founding Fathers, he finds them so cool to the prospect of, of course, political parties, private associations that would try to influence the government. They even got cold feet, he reminds us, on freedom of the press. I mean, if the Founding Fathers were disturbed by the rise of civil society, is it not ironic, as he says it is, that we're so enthusiastic about this um, concept today? Well, I've read the book. I didn't read it in exactly that way, I guess. Um, I don't think there's any evidence that the Founding Fathers were uncomfortable at all uh, with, with civil society. I mean, I think they were, they didn't, so far as I know, um, but Bob Middlecoff may tell me I'm wrong, use the term. But certainly, um, there's a lot of historical evidence that the kinds of institutions that so impressed Tocqueville and, uh, you know, 30, 40 years later were, were quite vigorous um, in the American colonies and, and states. And I would have thought that uh, this was something the founders were entirely comfortable with. And I don't see certainly the Constitution um, as a statement of that at all, and, and just the opposite. Because I, as I see the, the fundamental compromise in the Constitution, it really is between the central government and the states. And what the states get is the police power, and that's the power of the health, welfare, and safety of the people. And within the states, there was, I think, a safe haven for civil society, and pretty widely regarded. So no, I just wouldn't see it that way. Uh, as to the end of the Cold War, I understand maybe this is not your specialty, but um, just, uh, looking back, would you say 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna duck on that one. The question is, what brought the Cold War to an end? And uh, I'm dumb, but I'm not, I'm not that dumb. I, I clearly, clearly at the end, uh, what we would call civil society organizations were helpful uh, in the closing stages of state socialism and certainly were in the early transitional period. And it was churches were, women's groups were, greens were. You know, if you travel to uh, the GDR in the late 80s, as I did, those were the groups you met with. Usually, for instance, greens and women's groups uh, in churches. They weren't strong organizations, but the state was tolerating them. And I don't think there's any doubt that that was helpful. Did they cause the downfall of communism, the GDR? No, I don't think so. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.